Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's going on, beautiful people? We've got a great episode for you today. Another awesome guest. I mean, come on, you're not allowed on the show if you're not awesome. So there you have it. So before we get started, we just wanted to raise some awareness for a friend of ours, friend of the show, Izel Molina. Izel is one of the best kids you'll ever meet. He comes from a great family as well. Izel's eight-month-old dog, Titus, has recently been diagnosed with a rare brain condition and only has a few months to live without surgery. The surgery is rare and very expensive, so insurance cannot cover the whole thing. They would love to give Titus a fighting chance at life, so any donation at their GoFundMe page, no matter how big or small, would be greatly appreciated. You can find that at GoFundMe.com, type in Saving Titus, T-I-T-U-S, or if you Google Saving Titus, T-I-T-U-S, it's the first GoFundMe page that comes up. Plus, we will have a link to the page in the description of this episode, so please check that out if you can. So this guy's an upstate baller, hailing from Casanova, New York. And he's got that Jersey toughness too. He was a Rutgers Lacrosse All-American in 2015, as well as the Big Ten Specialist of the Year. He currently is a professional lacrosse player for the Whip Snakes Lacrosse Club. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Nardella. Story is Joe Nardella. He's the leading scorer. Here is Nardella takes it right to the house. This one will wind up going to Whip Snakes. It's Nardella going for a run. Joe Nardella has a pair. He's won every face-off. He has an assist. And now a goal. And he's not the MVP. He's definitely one of the leading candidates, right? I mean. Um, so what's going on, brother? Uh, it's really good to see you, man. I know we've exchanged some texts here and there, but it's great to see you, not in person, but to see your face. Yeah, likewise. And not a whole lot's going on. Just gearing up. Just been training hard. You in Boston or uh, Casanova right now? I'm back home in Q's just to keep It's like way more low-key here, you know? Oh, absolutely. New York State's doing pretty well with all this. Yeah, upstate's well t- doing well, too. Like, I, think well is, I think well is a relative term, too. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, have you ever met Ryan? He came in the year after you uh, you graduated. I don't think so. All right. So, yeah, you look, yeah uh, I feel like you look so familiar. Taters. Taters is another one of my names. Oh, so you've definitely heard the legend of Taters. I don't know if I have. Oh, dude, you're missing out. I'm missing out? Well, I guess I'm going to learn about it today. No, we're learning about you today, man. You got to do that on your own time. So you guys started this pod. You guys are doing a podcast. Yeah, man, we're uh, we're doing a podcast with the Believe Podcast Network. It's called Believe in Rutgers. It's hopefully going to be a, a rut hype machine that tells the truth about the awesomeness of Rutgers University and the great people who have gone to Rutgers, like yourself, and the great people who are there right now. That's awesome. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So man. we're going to be. So we're going to be talking to you. Uh, we talked to Mazone, and we're to be talking to Jules. It's basically we're doing a PLL preview episode. It's probably going to be airing sometime next week. Uh, let's start at Rutgers, man. So, so you didn't exactly have the greatest freshman year. Um, it was kind of tough, you know. You're recruited by Coach Staggs, um, and then Coach Breck comes in, and it's kind of tough, you know. You're you're away from home for the first time. Um, but then as a sophomore, you come back and you're a sensation and you go on to be an All-American by the time you're a senior. 
when did it click that you could really be something special? I think it was that sophomore year, even though we, I mean, we were in a ton of close games. I think we lost eight, um, one or two goal games uh, during a two and 13 season. And that year, um, Chris Aline and I had both just kind of kept us in every game because we were winning, winning draws and Chris was making a ton of saves. And both of us kind of realized like, damn, we're just as good as like all the best guys in the conference. And at the time it was the Big East. So we had Syracuse and Notre Dame. Right. And Georgetown, St. John's, Providence, Villanova. So it was a pretty competitive league. Um, and that's kind of when it clicked. I, I really just prepped hard after that freshman year. I think I was around like 52 percent, which was solid. But um, I knew I could be much better, especially if I really worked on the technique because I hadn't been taught until I got there. Um, and so those were things that really just helped push me forward. Yeah, man. I mean, just I remember watching you that year. I, I think after that year, I had a mutual friend from my town who was on the team and I was at Syracuse and he had hooked us up and we had met up and I was just coming yeah, off my, came to my house. Yeah. I was a senior. I, I was coming off my senior year, which I'd been doing. I did pretty well and I felt pretty good about myself. And then, uh, you quickly humbled me, making me realize I had a long way to go and, and how special you were. I remember that show and driving up to my house where you're taking face offs in the grass. Oh yeah, dude. Yo, you kicked my ass. I was like, Oh my God, who is this kid? Um, but that year came with, um, some interesting, interesting decisions you would make or wouldn't make. So you and I teammates in 2015, we, we know each other pretty well. And then me being at Syracuse, even without talking to you, I had heard the rumors that you were thinking about transferring to Syracuse uh, after that sophomore year, um, it seemed like a match made in heaven going back home. Rutgers was struggling. I guess what kept you from making that decision? And then with how it is with the how colleges are with the transfer portal now, kids are bouncing around more than ever. So what's your message to guys going through adversity like you were coming off a 2-13 and 13 season? Maybe the team wasn't where you wanted it to be. You know, and it's tough because I've talked to kids who've transferred like yourself and who have loved it, and it's been a great, great decision. Um, but I think when you kind of nestle in not only to, like, the team and the brotherhood, um, but to, like, the community. Like, I had a ton of friends not only on the team, but, you know, kids I had met in the dorms and classes, and, like, I legitimately loved Rutgers. And it definitely was a thought. I never even, like, talked to any coaches or really entertained it. Um, but I know, like, you know, when Coach Brexton got suspended, teams had, like, pseudo reached out to me through other people. Um, and they're like, what's he thinking? And, I, you know, I, it hadn't even crossed my mind until then. Um, but obviously, like, you know, I'm a competitor. I wanted to play for the best team possible. That was certainly not us. Um, so there was thought about it. But I think anyone going through struggle, going through adversity, like that, for me, I took it as a challenge to kind of be be a leader and try to change the culture. And although – you know, we didn't quite get there. Our, my junior year, we were much better. First year, Rutgers made the playoffs in, I think, 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. And we had a really solid team. We made a pretty good run at it, but we lost to Denver, who ended up winning the championship the following year. So they were pretty stacked. But my senior year, when we went to the Big Ten, we kind of took a dip, I think, because the level of competition increased. And we just lot of, lost a lot of close games. But that following years where, you know, when you were there and you guys went to the Big Ten finals, like that's when uh, I really saw the change. And that was what made it feel like it was super worth it. Because, you know, when, when things suck, when the team's not doing good and when you have a coach who does have a vision like Coach Brecht did, 
um, I just wanted to be a part of the change and, and lead the culture and kind of be the guy at Rutgers. I loved, uh, loved the responsibility of having to show up every game for us to have a chance. Yeah, make no mistake, you are a huge part of that change. Um, I go back to that Ohio State game in 2015 where you dominated. That game was a huge like confidence booster for us the following year in 2016 where we had more wins, and it's like, hey, we can we can play with these guys. And, and also, I don't think people realize, like, yeah, things were kind of chaotic in 2015, but we were losing a lot of close games. I mean, we lost a very good Army team, close. A very good Hopkins team that went to the Final Four, close. Um, Maryland beats us in the last, like, 10 seconds. I think they went to the championship game, right? They lost to Denver. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they lost to, lose to Denver. Yeah. And so we that's, lost to um, Princeton, who was, who was good back then, right? We lost mm-hmm. them by a goal. Like, you know, we had a ton of close games. There's a couple we definitely want back, like the Monmouth game where we oh, started. Oh, God, yeah. But here's the thing about the Monmouth game. Like, I feel like we almost needed that humble, like, to be humbled like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean, I was just going to say, I was in the stands for those games being recruit. And, like, even though you guys were, were losing, I was still looking at it as, like, hey, this is an opportunity for, to build something. You guys were in basically every single game. I remember the Maryland game I was there, the Army game, watching it. But how hard was it to just keep your motivation during those first couple seasons when you guys clearly weren't winning? Like, how, does, how do you, as a leader of the team, try to keep the locker room together? I mean, it's, you get, it's easy to say, like, oh, it was hard. But honestly, it wasn't that hard to stay motivated because we were so close, right? It's yeah. like I don't remember really getting blown out in any games when we were there. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we had a bad game against St. John's. My, so it might have been my sophomore year um, when McCardle just, like, absolutely ran it up. We, we got yeah. – they, they hung, yeah. like, 20 on us. Um, and then my senior year, we I think Virginia beat us by, like, six or seven maybe. And those are really the only two games I didn't feel like we were, like, in. But every other game, it was so close. And, like, we were a couple plays away from winning. And we were all, like, we got to get the next one. So everyone, was like, stayed pretty hungry. Guys were continuing to do extra work um, for the most part. You know, Sean, we got some guys who also went the other way. But Yeah, yeah there were a lot of guys on that team who maybe weren't doing things the way we all would have liked. But you were a guy who – worked extremely hard, handled his business, and made a tremendously positive impact on our program. Yeah, I mean, just to add on that, like, obviously, we didn't play together. We don't really know each other at all, but I remember your name. I remember going through that locker room being like, hey, I got to work my I got to work my ass off in order to, you know, preserve the legacy of those guys that came before me. And, you know, even though you didn't see the success, the years after when I was there for four years, we had so many wins, and it was just awesome to see that. Right, and that's what it's all about, paying mm-hmm. it forward to you guys. So back to the transfer stuff, I think in my situation, I would have stuck it out had things aligned for me more lacrosse-wise. You know, that's a story for another day, but um, in terms of you sticking it out, I think that really speaks to, you know, your loyalty to your teammates, to your university, uh, to your friends, and not just your friends, like you said, um, on lacrosse team, but, you know, your friends just in everyday life. Yeah, I mean, if I that. say I had left Rutgers, you know, there's no guarantee you win a championship at those other places or even, you know, they're recruiting the best kids every year. Like, yeah, absolutely. Maybe the coach doesn't love your game. Like nothing's guaranteed. And I think kids always think the grass is greener on the other side because they're going through trouble. But, you know, a lot of times it's not like you got to appreciate the little things and the, the friends that you have, because, you know, if you, if I say, 
if you had left later in your career, it's much harder to kind of get acclimated with the kids on the new team and really be a part of that. Like those kids who were there when you first start, like there's something to be said about the freshmen struggle together, right. And growing mm-hmm. up together and learning about each other and, and learning about college and life. Right. And you learn about those things together and that's what brings the team so close. That takes, that takes some time to develop. Like, like you see kids, like they're shitheads, like their freshman year. And then by the time they're senior, they're, they're buttoned up. Yeah. Different people. And like, you know, a Rutgers man, like for early mornings, like you guys are standing out there, like waiting for people to pick you up, not knowing if it's going to happen, taking the bus everywhere. Like, dude, it's like a lot of that stuff makes you so much better with time management and getting up early and just being on top of things. And like, you know, when you do mess up, you feel like it's the end of the world because you let everybody down. Um, do you think that Absolutely. you would have, do you think that you would have regretted if you transferred from Rutgers? It's tough to say, right? Yeah, could have transferred and like, you know, and I think about it because Syracuse lost that championship game my junior year to Duke. Yep. yep. Like they got smoked on faceoffs. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I grew and I love Rutgers more than anything. I grew up loving Syracuse. So that would have been like the only spot I really would want to go. Mm-hmm. Syracuse or Cornell being an upstate guy. Yeah, no, it's a really tough thing to even think about. But I mean, you know, it all works out at the end. I mean, you've been successful in everything that you've done since then. So I think it's turned out pretty well. So your pro lacrosse development, um, obviously, so you get drafted by the Cannons in 2015 before the season when the draft was before the season, and you had a pretty solid rookie year, and then seeing you grow every year, it seems like your technique gets better every single year. Um, What has changed most throughout your professional lacrosse career? I think how I practice and how I train and how I manage everything, you know, when you're in college, it's easy to try to do as much as you possibly can. And sometimes you get diminishing returns or guys get burnt out. You see it all the time. Um, Or you get banged up. And like, I definitely gotten banged up a lot in college, but I think, you know, with the pro structure this year aside, because we're playing the quarantine tournament, right. It's almost like it's game week every week and you're just really making sure you're taking care of your body. And then off season, it's just all about like trying to get in the best possible shape. And that's really, as I've kind of gone on with my career, you know, I coached college across at Harvard while playing for the Cannons. So I was just doing like a lot of the same division one type across like circuit training workouts, like similar to what we did at Rutgers. So it became a little monotonous. And I think I got like not complacent, but I was comfortable. And, you know, recently in the past year, I've worked with a couple different trainers, um, and I'm going into the gym now, this place called Compete Indoor Sports, and they kick my ass, and I'm training with a bunch of, like, you know, kids that are in college now, and we're doing so much more speed and, like, footwork than I've ever done. And, you know, I learned the hard – not the hard way because I was prepped for it, but I learned this past year in indoor, like, the game is running, man. So, like, I think that's something I've done more and invested more time in um, as I've gotten older, just my body, training – the sports site side of things. Like we're doing chats with our face off factory guys every Sunday and I'm hopping in. So like I'm continuing to learn too. And all that stuff is just painting the full picture of how many different ways you have to work on your game because you know, dude, all these kids coming up are so good. And to stay dude, out in front of it, you got to be awesome. doing more stuff. Yeah. You got to be doing more, um, but you got to be smart about how you work and use your time, not just hammering your body, but focus on other little things. That's awesome, man. Because I remember you and I had a um, a deep conversation after you got hurt uh, yeah. during uh, during USA prep, right, or right before USA prep. Yeah, right and before. 
and we were, uh, I think like the, the conversation was basically like the next time USA tryouts come out, you're going to be older. You got to take care of yourself. Um, and I was going through the same thing with my injury. So we were kind of talking yeah. about taking care of ourselves together and it was, uh, it was awesome. Dude, um, nah, you know, the ACL stuff's to grind, but once you get like past like month three and you start making progress, it's really, really encouraging. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that like makes you appreciate the little things, right? Like the good days and the bad days and kind of yeah. like pick, like pick your spots. Um, I think that was something that taught me a lot and really forced me to look inward and just appreciate like every single opportunity I get to, you know, even just practice. Oh yeah, dude. It's, it's like, dude, ACL man. Like, cause it's like, sell you you celebrate the little the little things like i can walk i can jog i got this degrees of extension and then that kind of i think it makes you appreciate the process more when you're done with it so then you're just like okay like we're going to practice today i get to work on this today i get to work on that today um i got let's say i took five shots and yesterday i made two of them okay well today i made three of them so celebrate the improvement so yeah, man, it, it humbles you, dude. And it, you can go to a dark place. Like you could come out a very different person. And it seems like you've come out for the better, man. I mean, yeah, um, definitely. It's ta- it taught me so much and just, you know, I'm very cognizant of little things now that, you know, I may have overlooked in the past, like preparation and, you know, prepping your body warming up like you know i need to go out there and take 100 face offs with no warm-up it's like what am i thinking what am i thinking yeah dude yo kids these days i'm sure you've seen it being a coach they do they do that too and i like lately i've been making them do forearm wrist warm-ups right like yeah get their legs going hips yeah exactly they just go straight that's how those chronic injuries and you know it's easy for face-offs because you're not running around and banging all the time like out in the open field or cutting so guys are like oh i don't need to get warmed up bro it's not that intense about my body take a couple days of face-offs every week and then tell me how you feel after a year right <laughs> <laughs> like it, it adds up that's where the chronic stuff comes from it's because it's all overuse you have to prep your body and like get everything warmed up so everything's working synchronously or you're just overloading certain areas because it's not a symmetrical you know motion or stance yeah, right? you're putting different strain on different parts of your body. Yeah, and you're putting like you're going down like with in the same stance every time, and it's not a balance. Like you said, it's not symmetrical. So like you de- you can it's easy to develop those imbalances. Yes, right. And I think that's where like my knee injury came from. It's just imbalances, and I've always been big on balance. And like you know, I grew up training that way because my dad's a wrestler, so we did a ton of stretching, right? A ton of core work, a ton of non-weight resistance stuff. So everything's in balance. How is he doing, by the way? He yo, he's the man. I remember, I remember yeah. uh, after we beat Ohio State, we were in like we went to some party in a backyard. Um, yeah, I remember what you're talking some about some party in the backyard. Yeah, you, me, JoJo, and and Mister Nards. Was a great time. <laughs> he he loves face off, and he's doing well. He's uh, trying to do work around the house. So thank you guys for getting me out of it for a little bit. Oh yeah, no so, worries, man. So compared to like college, um, pro lacrosse in general, um, it's a lot more on your own. So mm-hmm. compared to that with college, where everybody's trained together, how much harder is it? Do you, do you think it's harder to be a pro lacrosse player and train to compared to like a college lacrosse player? I mean, lacrosse is a much different pro sport than like, you know, the NFL, the MLB, the NHL. They have so many more team sessions. Lacrosse is so much more on their own. 
you think it's like harder to be a pro lacrosse player and train and keep that motivation? Yeah, definitely. I think that's why you don't see a lot of guys have long careers, especially when they're working other jobs, because it becomes, it's a second job training. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm spending recently spending two to three hours a day doing stuff to get ready for this PLL tournament. So like, I, I get it. It's really hard for those guys working other jobs and that's why guys phase out. Um, I think one thing I've done well is I put myself in positions where it's easy to be accountable to training, right? I was coaching division one lacrosse. Like those kids are going in the weight room and I'm not gonna, that's like, you got it. You got to do it. Right. So I'd always been inclined to just continue the training. And then recently, since I've not been coaching division one, um, I was like, I got to get somewhere where someone else is like an expert is going to really help me out. Mm-hmm. Um, and my strength coach show drain has been awesome with all of it. I want to talk about your PLL game currently, but I guess first let's talk about like, how are you preparing for this season and what's different and, and what's the same? You know, I think pre- preparation wise, the difference is like, we're not preparing, like it's easier to p- prepare for like those one big day a week games. But now it's like, it's going to be a battle of attrition. Like we were, we're playing four games in a week ish, right? Like that's going to be tough. We have a double header. Um, so I think preparing for like, my training has been really clumped into like, two hard days, like regen day, two hard days, regen day. So it's like, I'm constantly pounding my body, giving it a little rest, pounding my body, giving it a little rest. Um, same with face-offs, trying to go like super hard two or three days in a row. And then, you know, take a day or two off where I'm not doing any face-off stuff and give my hands and wrists and hips and shoulders <laughs> and back a break. Um, so I think that coupled with NLL just, you know, playing more in the field than running. Like, I feel like my conditioning, I've just focused on more so than ever. Mm -hmm. I get that completely. But since everybody being quarantined, like how has COVID like impacted the team? Like, is there still camaraderie? I'm sure you guys are doing Zoom calls, but how has that played out? Making sure that everybody's still on top of their stuff, working out and doing everything they can. Yeah, so our team's unique situation because we're, you know, we're like 75% Maryland guys. So they already have that that camaraderie so it's pretty natural um and the guys not from maryland like myself and ty warner like we've phased right in because we play like those guys play like tough hard nose lacrosse so everyone's been putting in the work you know we're we're pretty hungry to repeat considering like although we're technically the favorites like not a lot of people are giving us respect man it's all about the other teams and the flash right and people are, are, are sleeping on the snakes Oh yeah, you you don't want you don't want to sleep on a snake in the grass. And that's right, snake in the grass. <laughs> yeah, dude. So I was listening to uh, the Stripe, uh, Greg's podcast, and um, yep. And the um, looking at your statistics, um, number one, I was very surprised. Um, looking at your clamp percentage, I was very surprised it was in the thirties because I think you have outstanding technique, um, but. I think it's super impressive that your clamp percentage was that low and your face-off percentage was in the top three of the league. Um, I get, to me, that says that you as a 27-year-old professional are, have a ceiling that is, you know, that is through the roof. Like, like how, can you, how have you taken the film from last year and to uh, – and built and how have you taken the film from last year and made a plan for yourself to build on that success? Because I don't care what the clamp percentage is, man, the face off percentage is super impressive. And then you can, you look at that 
that's just like, wow, like you could be the best guy in the league. Um, I think it's, you can look at it from a couple different angles, right? Number one, I think strategically, sometimes I bail out because I know I can play defense. So that probably skews the stats as well as like a couple bad games where, you know, I was a little bit stubborn in addressing some things rather than just changing it up early on. But I think, you know, seeing my clamp percentage was like 35%, but also the face, the clamps that I lost, my percentage was like 35%. I was like, damn, I'm stealing a ton of them back. Right. So it's like, number one, I got to make sure I'm not going early because I have a 35% chance, even if I lose the clamp, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I could kind of couple those things together and bring my clamps up, I've, I've really been focusing on a lot of technique work, a lot of first move stuff, a lot of reaction stuff and been feeling great the past week and a half, like best weeks of practice I've maybe ever had. And that's, I think definitely credited to training with guys like T Erland and Drew Simino who are both, speedsters to the ball to the best right and those guys have really helped me transform my game but I think just watching the film I've noticed like you know I rotate a little bit too quickly so I've changed my stance um sometimes I'm stuffing in too much so my elbows getting bent on my rotation rather than locking out so I've kind of worked on developing a shorter snappier first move which has really helped and then just patience in my tie-ups not rotating as much because if guys want to pull the ball out while I'm kind of sitting there I'm probably going to beat them on the ground ball if I'm in position. But when I wedge myself upfield, that's when I'm losing that secondary. I'm losing my my ability to even make a play on the ball by going upfield and giving them the easy out forward. Yeah, but mm-hmm. then you look at your ability to also create offense. Like you had 12 points last year, six and six. I didn't look at the other face-off guys' statistics because I don't have to look at that to tell you that is the top amount of points for a face-off guy in the league like that is not only like even if we even if you get the possession like there's no guarantee you're going to score but then when you come on when you when you put in a top three face-off percentage and then 12 additional points that's dangerous that's right And, and a lot of it you know I was talking to Greg on the podcast he's like where do you think a lot of those opportunities come from I was like only a couple are true four on threes most of them are six on five, five on fours because we get the other team out of position out of ground ball plays um, or guys run off and give us free transition. So I think, you know, just understanding offense, being a coach, understanding transition, us focusing on it a ton at Rutgers, those oh, things yeah. all. We did tons of plays my, with my, you. I know that those things all kind of led to my game being catered this way. And I know I can say this to you because you're my boy. When people say the top three stuff, it's like, dude, playoffs count. I was number two in percentage. You, oh, wow. I didn't, look at that. I didn't even look at that. What? No, that, on the website, they just have the regular <laughs> season stats. But I think it's, it's BS because the playoffs count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know you're – Oh, sorry. Go right. No, you're good. Well, I was just going to say, so your overall goal with the Whip Snakes is obviously to repeat. But do you have any personal goals that you want to, like, eclipse? Do you want to get more points, more ground balls, better face-off percentage? Like, what do you what's, – what's motivating you? What are your personal goals for the season? I think I got to lead the league in ground balls again. I got to get my clamp percentage. I just got to get my percentage higher than last year. If I can go above 54 and change, right? If you're in the 55 to 60 range, that's elite for pros. Um, You know, it's easy to say, like, I want to be the top guy in the league, but that's also out of my control, right? Because Mm -hmm. I'm only playing in seven of the 20 games possibly, right? Like, 
I could have a good game against every guy, but you, you know, a guy like Trevor Baptiste can pop off against everybody else. And there's nothing I can do about that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't think being number one in percentage is my goal, but I think being number one in points and ground balls are totally within my control. Cause that's just playing lacrosse post face off, um, which is what I'm all about. And then I think my, my last one is, you know, maybe, spell some of those guys and play a little more defense than I have in the past and also stay on a little more in transition, especially against those teams with only one guy um, to really make them work a little more. Cause I think my conditioning is at a level that it hasn't been at before. So do you think you're going to play more six on six or is it just going to be more transitional stuff? Well, we're going to have to ask coach Stags about oh, that. Gotcha. But okay. I would love, yeah, me and Rambo <laughs> texting the other day about some pass down, pick down plays and some lefty breaks. Um, so I, I hope so, man. Wow. I think I understand picks a lot better than I have in the past because, you know, indoor is – I don't know if you guys ever watch, like, indoor practice. Well, it's, all, it's, all two man, it's all two-man game. That's all it is. It's all, just people slam. All two-man, right? And you can slam guys full contact, right? And so playing defense, you see what the offensive guys are trying to do every time and you get a great view of it. Um, mm-hmm. And though it's like, box in general, I think the reason those guys are better, obviously the tighter quarters and such, but you think about like how they practice and how many more games they play over the course of their lives. Like, dude, those kids are getting so many reps in a box practice. You're shooting the ball like a hundred plus times. Yeah. Right. You're throwing and catching so much more. It's the balls on the ground so much more. It's just like more reps of everything. And over time, like Sean's a face up guy. He knows this better than anybody. Dude, you add you stack on hundreds of thousands of reps, like you're guaranteed to be better, more confident in tough situations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Think about how many times you think about how many times you touch the ball as like a D MIDI or face-off guy in a field practice on a field team during the season. It's not that much. No, no, dude. Yeah. Then one of the coaches at Harvard used to always say this, like, I'd rather our face-off guys be able to throw amazing passes, both hands, than catch because they're mostly only throwing. Absolutely. Oh, wow, that makes sense. I guess I can uh, tell Coach Breck the reason I dropped a couple passes in the game is because of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, Coach, uh, <laughs> that I was only practicing throwing. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but – you should like all face up guys to anyone listening. You have to be able to do those things. You don't want to be in that situation where the co- coach doesn't trust you to catch the ball. But that was just a valid point um, off of what you had said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, now going back to what you're doing to improve. Now, how do you balance trying to improve your clamp percentage, but also like not changing what you do? Like you said, there were a couple games where you were like, I was a little too stubborn and I've been there before where it's like you, you might as well just bail on the clamp because the other guy's not as good of an athlete as you, but you just stay in there. Cause it's like, Oh, I want the ball. So how do you balance not changing who you are? Cause that's always been who you are. And honestly, you said this the other day over text, you're like, you know what? Like if I, I you're like, yo, I was an all American in college and you know what? I wasn't the best on the clamp, even in college. I think you know, like I definitely trying to improve the areas of deficiency, like rotating too quickly, right? Committing to my first move. Like we've talked about that, but I think ways that we can kind of continue to push things forward is to look at those good games, right? If you take out two or three bad games, I'm 60 plus percent last season, oh, yeah. which is nuts, right? So if I can just get every game close to 50, 
Like that'd be a huge step. Right. And I think that's a realistic goal for everyone. Just win every matchup. And, you know, it's way easier said than done when you're going against guys like Tom Kelly and, and Trevor. But I think and even if you get close to 50, only like minus two or three, like that'll help though when you have those good games. And going back to what we were saying, those good games are what you want to try to pick from, right? See the things you were doing right. And then that's, that's how that you can like not lose your identity or what makes you successful, but focus on the, the right things. And whenever I struggle, I go back to good games or I go back to college film. And although, you know, sometimes I was standing up and my stance knee down was totally different and things have changed, you can look at like some of the basics, like where's my right hand hitting when I meet his stick, right? How high up is my left hand going? Like a lot of those same themes I've tried to emulate both in college and early in my career in the games recently, I've been successful. You mentioned you were an assistant coach at Harvard. Um, so now you currently are full-time with a very successful business uh, teaching face-offs um, called Face-Off Factory. Um, what did your time at Harvard, I guess, teach you about the coaching profession? It taught me a lot. So when I was there, I was the youngest one on staff all four years. I don't think there's any years that anyone else working with me was below the age of 30. So like I had to grow up pretty quickly. And I think that made me way more fit to lead a lot, like a large group of kids. Right. So like I'm speaking in front of 50 Ivy league college kids. Like I got to be buttoned up with my preparation, what I'm going to say, like my delivery, cause they're going to read into everything. My body language, um, so I really learned how to be a leader and learn how to look at lacrosse like more analytically, more structurally and like functionally and how I can implement that into large groups and how you can make sure everybody's doing something. So there's no wasted time. And I think that just, you know, sums it up is I became much better at being like a functional, efficient, um, like, how do I want to say it? Inspirational leader. I think my face top factory kids like totally like enjoy it. And you know, I have a ton of other great coaches who work with me, but the kids always say like, they like a lot of them are like, well, yeah, it's not the same when you're not here because I have a different coaching experience. Right. But um, again, back to coaching, I'm sure that, you know, how much better has that made you in all aspects of the game, you know, because being a division one coach, you have to be faced, you have to be well-versed in offense, defense, specialists, you know, goalies, how much better is that major overall across IQ? Uh, crazy. You know, like you're around high level guys watching film, thinking about different things, hearing great coaches coach. Um, I've been lucky to work with some really good, both like mature adult coaches, like in their mid to late thirties and like younger, early thirties coaches. Um, mm -hmm. So I've learned a ton, but I think like, you know, you, I, my last year there, not only was I helping out with goalies, I was running the man down defensive assistant face-offs wing play right so transferring directly into box the next year like I never would have been that quick to pick up on like a Canadian heavy game um and it's like my team like they're not if I had a FOGO they weren't letting me play right mm -hmm. I have to I can't be a liability on D and I think there's only one game that I really got like picked on you know they try to pick on me every game because they think American face-off guy rookie but I think only one game I played bad where, you know, a couple goals are my fault and we're a save or two away from them not being my fault. But I think I would never would have been able to play indoor if I wasn't, you know, fully immersed in, de in defense. And also, like, my percentage has always been better because I know how to coach my own wings. And, like, you see Greg does a really good job of this too. That's why his teams are always really buttoned up on the wings is because 
he's like coaching his own wing guys, whereas other teams may not. So that gives us a huge advantage. Oh yeah. You need as a faceoff guy, like nobody understands the position and the wings better than the faceoff guy. You need to get on the same page as the faceoff guy. It can't be the faceoff guy getting on the same page as you. Okay, so let's get into a interesting subject. It's 2018, you're coming off your knee injury, and the Boston Cannons have number one overall pick in the college draft. Now, Trevor Baptiste is available. He's the best face-off man in the history of college across. He's the kind of guy who could help out any team. But you were one of the better guys in the league at that time, and if you have the number one overall pick, there's certainly a lot of other holes you need to fill. So what's going through your mind before they make that pick? I felt like they were going to pick him the whole time for those reasons that you, that you said. He, he could help any team. He was a generational talent. Not many people at any position are four-time All-Americans. But it was tough for me because, you know, I was coming off an injury. Um, I didn't know how I was going to play. Obviously, I was fearful of what the return was going to be like as any athlete would be. And I really just tried my best to get myself prepared. You know, sometimes I think especially that last game um, that I played in Boston, it had, like, crept into my mind a little bit. But prior to that, it really didn't um, because he's still in school and the coaching staff had kind of strung me along. Like, you know, it would be an open competition or that they would keep both of us if that were going to be the case. But I don't know. It was tough to – block out the distractions and just focus on what was ahead of me. Right. And it's not like Trevor's making that decision. Trevor's like the nicest guy ever. That's the front office. That's the point that I really learned what professional sports are in lacrosse. And like, I even said this to the staff with the cannons, like I've been lucky to get to live here and get to know all you guys super well. And I feel like in professional sports relationships that like pure and genuine, where you can really help one another are pretty, um, pretty unique especially in lacrosse where we're a little bit more of a tight-knit community because of the size. So I had appreciated everything that had gone on there, but I also got, you know, the clear-cut business part of it, um, which was an eye-opener and definitely a nice little wake-up call as I've grown up and learned what being a veteran in a professional league looks like. Um, So it was a great learning experience all around, and I think that year really motivated me to be better. Um, I think that was my best, like, 10-game stretch as a pro where I had taken all the face-offs for Atlanta and was, you know, 59.6% in nine or 10 games, which is pretty solid. I think I was the best out of anyone at the, at that time for one team throughout the season. So that had kind of helped me kickstart the second half of my career post-injury. Right. And that Blaze team you were traded to had a ton of upstate guys on it. So that must've been fun. Yeah, I really think we're a championship team. And I've talked about it a couple times, especially in preparation of the PLL. You know, the first year I was on Boston, we had a chance. We'd lose in overtime in the playoffs to the eventual champion. A champion. And then that game, we lose to Denver, the eventual eventual champion, on a shot where Connor Kelly's foot was on the line. So instead of us tying it with the two, um, we went down by one with about 10 seconds left. And I actually got the face off forward and had a chance to go down and shoot and instead passed it and the ball got tipped. So that one always eats at me. We were absolutely loaded. Our attack was like Cuccinello, Rice, Connor Kelly. We had some solid midfielders, both offensively and defensively. Good defense, a lot of good leaders on that team. And that was probably one of the most fun teams I've played on. Um, 
obviously the whip snakes and black wolves being up there in that top three and not picking a favorite. So let's get into the mental side of your game. I saw you guys were doing a sports psychology clinic with Dr. Wally Bisdell. Uh, Dr. Wally Bisdell is the very famous sports psychologist who did an amazing job with us at Rutgers. Uh, does an amazing job with a lot of different teams around the country, a lot of high-level teams. Uh, Providence College Hockey being one of them, another one being Union College Hockey. He actually won a national championship with Union College a couple of years ago. Um, what lessons from him do you continue to use throughout your professional career? Dude, it's so crazy because I've learned, you know, Wally and I worked together at Rutgers for one year and then, you know, I didn't talk to him for a couple of years just because like that wasn't so, like we had a sports psychologist who would come to training camp every year for the Cannons. And, like he was our guy um, when I played in the MLL. But recently, his son's a face-off guy. So as he's gotten older, he had reached out oh, wow. to me. And he was like, I'd love for you to train my kid, right? So I work with his son, Alex. He's been doing some of my virtual stuff even lately because we haven't been able to get to Albany and do it in person. Um, but he, we've been, like, he's done a couple sessions with me, and we've recorded them for my subscription platform, FOF Online, so like kids can kind of learn a little more about it because I think it's one of the most undercoached things, right? People are training their craft. They're training their body, but they're not training their mind. So he's forced me to look at, you know, sports and the mental side of things and psychology in such a different light that not only am I better at like handling my emotions, I'm better at resetting. You know, I haven't had too many like bad games where I like get in a hole or can't dig myself out. Like even the games against, you know, my two worst games, like against Farrell and Baptiste, um, Farrell was, I think the second game of the season. Like I still won the last two face-offs of the game after getting my, like getting crushed for a while. So I was able to bounce back when my team needed me most, even though like things had not gone my way. Right. First time, like they had put a pole out for me in such a long time when I've been facing off. And then like against Baptiste, that first game you know, he kicked my ass in the first half. And then like the second half, we were closer to 50, 50. We got a transition goal or two. Um, and again, in the fourth quarter, when time was of the essence, things were tight. Like I was able to show up and respond despite all of the negative side of it, like things, and, you know, early in my career, you saw like when I was at Rutgers, I would get, I'm so competitive. I would get so mad when I would lose, like, you get like you guys can barely talk to me, and you'd always be like, "Come on, buddy!" Like, let's oh go on the sideline. Yeah, I remember that. Have his arm around me, little <laughs> He's like, "We, get, dude, you're the best. I got. You're gonna win the next one. You're gonna win the next one." And he's like, "You know, without guys like that, you know, there's not three or four guys at your position anymore. You don't have people that like directly understand the struggle you're going through. So you have mm -hmm. to be your own coach. So he's kind of just allowed me to to take a step back, have a different perspective, and be more more analytical and less like always taking information rather than frustration and controlling my emotions, which has helped my game a ton. Yeah. And stuff goes, yeah. always goes wrong in face-offs. Oh yeah. And the cross in general. Yeah. And there's evidence of that. Uh, I mean, I was at the championship game and you, you started off the game really well. And then Greg started to go on a run. The wood started to go on a run. And then in overtime, when your team needs you the most, you come out with the overtime face-off. Like that's not easy. Like that's, that's really hard to do. Right, like he's got all the confidence in the world just dominating the second half. And I'm like, all right, here we go, boys. Yeah, like that's really, that's really hard. And, and also, like, I feel like 
sometimes I feel like sometimes like not reading into things is good too, is, is a skill like, like coach Staggs throwing out the pole in that second game I was there. And then you win those last two faceoffs. Like that's, that's important. Not be like, Oh shit. Like I, like I, they just threw the pull out on me. Like, damn, I stink. No, you're like, you know what? I'm taking a break. I'm getting my head together and I'm going, I'm going right. face off. Um, nice but so, so what I want to ask you uh, specifically about the clinic with Wally, um, so where can people sign up for that? And is it limited to just face-off guys or can other people go? No, no, anyone could do it. Honestly, like the, the curriculum is definitely a little like, more like catered to face-off guys because he like, Wally gets it. He has a son who's going through it. Him and I have talked. So he really fully understands the position. And obviously like those are the kids that I work with, but like, you know, if a family member or anything wanted to hop in, like always welcome. And all you have to do is go to faceofffactory.com and on the homepage, it's in yellow. It pops right out. You just scroll down a little bit. It says um, high performance mindset. Coach Stagnita recruited you um, to Rutgers and then wasn't there for your time at Rutgers. How has your guys' uh, reunion been? And what was your first reaction when you knew he was going to be your coach? I was fired up when I was able to, uh, when I knew I was going to get to work with Coach Staggs again. Obviously, I played for his brother um, for club in high school. So, like, I'm very familiar with him. He was one of the first guys who had reached out during the recruiting process, um, sending me a ton of letters. So, I, I had always had a lot of respect for him and, and admired him, like, based on how my visits went and stuff. Um, and it really just – me going to Rutgers worked out in a weird way where they had someone – they filled up their class early. I was ready to make a commitment. And then they had someone drop late. And the last tournament before my senior year in the summer, he was there and I saw him watching. So I actually reached out to him and he's like, yeah, we got one spot. Um, and I asked if I wanted to go there and it was pretty crazy. It happened so quick, but I, I think getting to work with someone who's such a good leader and so good at like with all the leadership qualities, it's taught me a lot of like, as a co young coach. Um, so I really look up to him and admire what he's been able to, to implement into our team and the culture he's been able to create. Whip Snakes are one of three PLL teams to only bring one face-off guy. Um, everyone's kind of, you know, on social media talking about like, oh, like this is not a good idea. Like, or it's going to, like, what if he gets hurt or all this crap? Like, how has that, I guess, has that changed your approach in how you take care of yourself or no? Uh, definitely, yeah. And like even now with quarantine, like have to be extra careful. God forbid, like someone in the league fails this test and can't travel like they put their team in a tough spot and obviously being the only draw guy that's something coach Staggs and I've talked about but yeah prep wise like mobility like I said those regen days that's something like you know I've done but I've never spent an hour just doing a regen day still burning like four or five hundred calories right so I yeah. think putting more stock and time into that and then also being a good teammate like I've been teaching Joe McCallion um how to take draws via zoom and he goes and he gets reps and he sends him film just like I'm coaching him like anyone else, which is pretty sweet. And he, he was a guy who was in the fifties um, at Penn, really good two-way midi. So I think having a guy like that, if you're only planning on them taking five draws a game max, um, definitely helps us keep the rest of our roster a little bit deeper. But uh, yeah. to end the interview, we're going to do a quick, you know, five questions in honor Craig Kilborn, you know, five rapid fire questions. So first one, I got a favorite Rutgers bar. Old Queens, man. And it's not even close, but times are different. Times have changed. I've been back and there's a couple good spots. 
But mm-hmm. from when I was there, it, it was and always has been Queens. They'll always have a spot in my heart. It's Weird just the most it. Rutgers place, you know? That's right. Um, second one, upstate New York or downstate New York? Upstate, for upstate. sure. Yeah, I think anything north of like, you know, people in the yeah. city will say like anything north of the city's upstate. It's not. Anything it's north not of like great. Westchester, like Hudson Valley mm-hmm. is upstate. Yeah. Like my, my cousins live in Utica. So like that's yeah. upstate too. So like, yes, yeah, so. exactly. Chris Elaine so, said Albany last night. He said Albany's like upstate. I, it kind of is because if you think about it, it's not, it's basically directly um, east of Syracuse. Like when I drive back from Boston, I drive right through. It's literally a street shop, Boston to Syracuse. Um, so technically Albany's just as much upstate as, you know, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, because they're all kind of um, that three-way line or the Erie Canal line. Mm-hmm. Right down I-95, or what is it, I-87? Yeah. Uh, 95 north south. Right uh, down 95 north south. No, it's, it's, 90. it's 90. It's 90. The three-way is 90. <laughs> so um, right, right uh, down College Ave, you used to always say that. <laughs> right oh, down. yeah, you're right. I did used to always say that. When I'd score, because some, I think it was like Joe Beninati said it on one of the Big Ten broadcasts, then Sean would always say it. He'd be like, right down College Ave, like every time he would shoot. <laughs> No, it was um no, it was uh Rick Mercurio. The yeah, alert. you're right. It was Rick Mercurio. I love that guy. He's the man. He, oh he says the funniest things, yo. For for Kieran Mullins once, he was like, "Holy jumping Joe" or something like that. <laughs> yeah, Kieran Mullins. Yeah, I love I love his accent too. All right, more annoying accent: New York or Boston? Boston, for sure. Like most people aren't bad with it, but then there's like some people who you can just tell, like. We're never really fully taught how to speak unless they didn't listen to other people. And like, I'm fully aware, like, you know, sometimes people say, I say that things, I say things weird or pronounce things weird and I get it. And so do they, but like sometimes people in Boston, they're not even pronouncing the right letters. I know. I know. Like, car is spelled with an R, not an H. Okay. Get, get <laughs> your, get Any goodwill yeah. hunting moments where you're like, all right, that's, that's like from the movie. Um, honestly, what's it called? Harvard Square. Yeah, coaching there. Like, I'd see spots where, like, you know, and there's other movies that have been filmed there, too. I'm like, this is crazy. Oh, my God. Do you like apples? Yeah, that's the scene I think about when they're outside the, the little um, cafe or whatever. I got a number. How about them apples? Oh, my God. Um, funniest Rutgers memory? Funniest Rutgers memory. Um, by far. We're at a tailgate for a football game, and one teammate, Rich Rambo, is standing on top of a car, and Brian Lenskold says some – he was basically talking smack to him all day, antagonizing him, and he said something really funny, like, that sure makes you look really fat or something. And he's walking away to go to the bathroom, and Rambo takes a two-liter bottle of soda and throws it as – like Lenny's like 50 yards away at this point, like halfway across the parking lot, whips it as hard as he can. And it like looked like it was, we were playing jackpot. Like the ball hung in the air forever. Dude, the two liter, like three quarters of the way full slams Lenny in the back of the head. His sunglasses <laughs> fall off and he falls face forward on the ground. <laughs> he looks up and it just ran on the car. He's like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that was probably the best. It was so fun. Like the the chances of someone hitting that, 
are like a one in a million. Tough day <laughs> for the lobster. That it was, but you know, Rambo's got those bare hands. He probably had a really good grip on it, just a mild sweat, so it slipped out nice and smooth, and he drilled them. Oh my god, that's so funny. Then the last one, uh, will the whip snakes repeat? Headline grab. What the whip snakes will repeat, I think. You know, defense wins championships in these games where guys are going to get t- really tired, right? I think that anytime there's like back to backs or double headers, it always plays to more chaos in a defensive mm-hmm. style game um, because the O guys aren't going to be as explosive running by people. So I think for sure, us having the strongest defense, and in my opinion, the strongest goalie in Kyle Burnmore, and then we add an absolute stud in TJ Camizio, who you guys played against in Nova. Um, yep. I think our defense is in a really, really good spot. Oh, yeah. He's from uh, Del Barton, I want to say. Del Barton, yeah. I went to Villanova. And, uh, hey, I really want to thank you for coming on this podcast, man. You're a great friend of mine. Always have been. Always will be. And I uh, uh, really appreciate all the things you did for us um, at Rutgers and all the things you did for me personally. So uh, I want to wish you well on PLL Island, and uh, we'll be rooting for you. Yeah, thanks Sounds a lot. great, boys. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Sean, you're the man. Always here for you, Ryan. Great to meet you and learn a little bit more about you. Um, I'm sure I'll see you here in the near future. Hopefully we get college football. We'll be back for alumni weekend before we know it. Oh, yeah, dude. Hey, hey, first round's on me, all right? All right. Heard it here. You recorded it. it. We're going to get, like, Ryan, we're going to get some, like, age, like, something like 20, 30 years old, super expensive. Sean's got us. Hey, like, we're hey we're back in New Brunswick, man. Drinks are cheap. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> You're very, very true. You are very right. All right, fellas, have a great day. Right, hey, Narzi, thanks, appreciate bro. you, man. Hey, you made it to the end, or I'm just talking to myself and Ryan. You stay classy, Piscataway. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.